Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 133rd episode of the Truth Island Podcast. According to Oxum's Razor, it is often the simplest theory or solution that is the answer. For example, it would be foolish to hypothesize that a secret cabal of space aliens prevented you from getting a promotion at work when your last two performance reviews were not too stellar. In life, we often ignore solutions that are fairly obvious because one, they are so obvious we don't see them, and two, perhaps the answer is so obvious but would cause such a great deal of pain that we play mental tricks on ourselves in order to avoid feeling hurt. For example, take the husband that comes up with elaborate theories as to where his wife is going every night when in reality, she is simply having an affair. While many things in this world have very elegant and simple answers, there is a danger of oversimplifying things too much. For example, take the legal structure of any country and compare it to the 10 commandments. Take the commandment, thou shall not kill. Well, what if we're talking about during times of war? What if it's in self-defense? What if it's involuntary manslaughter? For every law that one may come up with, hundreds of exceptions and caveats immediately spring up, which forces those examining the problem to have to deal with, despite how simple the case may seem. The same can be said with economic theory, medicine, public policy, and even how one raises their own children, as no two kids are fully alike. Thus, knowing when and when not to apply Oxum's razor remains very difficult as one never knows whether the answer is staring you right in the face or needs to be chased and pinned down. Helping me to determine how to decide whether a problem is complex or simple, I am once again joined by Alexander. Alex, do you think this conversation is going to have a simple or complex answer? Definitely complex. No way around it. <laughs> On Truth Island, everything is always complex, right? That's that's my laconic answer to your important but exhausting question. You know, <laughs> I, I would I would have to push back on one point. I think that Oxum's razor. Uh, I, admittedly, I didn't realize that that was how you pronounce his first name, Oxum. I, I've only read it, so I, I maybe I'm saying wrong. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so let's say Oxum's. So that razor is really about the most effective way to achieving the conclusion. It has no no uh, degree of moral right or wrong. And this mm. is where it's going to get complex, right? For example, if you wanted to achieve something simply, you draw a straight line. Done. But if that straight line happens to run through a series of circumstances that morally cause collateral damage to everyone that doesn't that, that doesn't directly affect you, is that the right way of getting it done? That could be causing you a problem down the road. And so it's Fract, fract, taking like a fractal approach towards a problem and see, zooming out and seeing it on a bigger picture is when complexities are required to have a surgeon's hand in uh, in, in completing tasks. Oh yeah, uh, I, I agree with you that Oxum's razor is definitely the best. If you want to get somewhere quick, that's the way to do it. But what ends up happening is that it actually ends up slowing you down because you think something is really simple. You're like, well, why don't we just do this and 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 
great. You, you come to a, uh, a unanimous decision fairly quickly, but then you reach all these bumps in the road. And that in the long run actually slows you down because you did not prepare any contingencies for that. Like, I'm, like I always think of like, you know, sometimes I hear from girls, I just like a spontaneous man who just says, Hey guys, we're going to Vegas. Right. And just like pack, you know, get your stuff ready. We're packing. We're going to Vegas tomorrow. Don't even think about it. But it's like, don't you realize all the speed bumps you're going to run into? Like, oh, wait a minute. I, I didn't take days off from work and that's going to create a problem. Or, oh, oh, you know, like I have this really important wedding engagement next week. You know, it's like that guy acted super quickly. He acted super quickly and like went on Expedia and booked cheap tickets and was like, well, let's do this. But now his plans are being thwarted because he didn't take into account all the speed bumps that are going to come with just booking a spontaneous Las Vegas vacation. A hundred percent. And it, this is why I love Star Wars is because it breaks down the advantages of the dark side, which is essentially Occam, Occam's razor, a hundred percent of your life, <laughs> regardless of consequences, right? Take, take the direct short route. You will succeed that way. It's a fact. You will succeed that way. There is like an actual martial practicality to that. So my answer to that would be the person who's having second thoughts needs to apply the razor to his own life, right? And say, I don't even need the job. Why do I need the job when I can go to Vegas and make 300,000? You know, that, <laughs> that would be the answer. I love that, man. I'll be like, well, you, don't you have work tomorrow, Aaron? Uh, well, Oxum's razor, man. Like, I got to go to That's Vegas. Right. Right now. <laughs> but there's some truth in that, too. You, you know, there is advantage to taking the shortcut. The disadvantage is you are going to create enemies. That's the problem. You know, and that's basically dark side, light side in a nutshell, right? Occam's razor will get you to the binary success point of your problem, but not, not the, not the fractal three-dimensional overall best overarching approach over time. You know, they're like, they're not taking into consideration. They're inverting the damage over time principle and in, in their risk assessment of a decision. See a person who understands the larger picture, more of a visionary knows that the amount of time in between the beginning and the end point is relative to how I need to negotiate my success. Whereas the person who's looking at a short term is saying the time that it takes for me to achieve a single success point, point is how much risk I need to take, right? And that's the difference between a pragmatist and a visionary. The, the pragmatic person is going to say, well, there will be no idea if I don't succeed in climbing up the vertebrate spinal columns you know, column by column, vertebra by vertebra, and just achieving short-term, multiple short-term goals to get to my success. But, you know, the visionary is going to say, yeah, that's all well and good once you have a skeleton, but you don't want scoliosis. So, so you know, it's, it's an interesting argument. So it's funny because I think that the over-analytical thinkers could definitely just benefit from just making some quicker decisions, right? Like they, they, they are definitely in need of slowing, of quick, of hastening their thought process in order to arrive at quicker. They need more spontaneity. They need to be like, well, I don't have all the details on this, but let's just do it anyway. And then the people who are brash and just, you know, plan Las Vegas vacations a day before, they need to kind of slow down and actually think more critically and more analytically. And I think both sides could benefit from a part of what the other has to offer. I think there's also just things in life, though, like some topics require um, really 
really brash decision making and others needs are, are more complicated. And I think in my intro, I kind of alluded to this where it's like if your wife is cheating on you or something like that, mm-hmm. right? That's something that kind of needs like a really brash confrontation with, right? And 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 yeah, you can plan out how you're going to do it, but there is no like elegant solution of like, well, maybe she's just exploring herself and this is just a fake, you know, it's like, okay, no, you need to address this right now and you need to do it rather quickly before it gets out of hand. But with something like the legal system, for example, we can't just be like guilty, guilty, you know, you kill, you know, we have to look at the circumstances, even, even, you know, people think that all murder cases are black and white. And I'm like, really? Like, like, suppose, suppose that person threatened to kill the other guy, you know, the very next day or whatever. I'm like, there's always all of these variables and all of these things. That doesn't mean the guy gets off the hook, but these, they're always um, all of these variables that kind of weigh down on the ultimate decision-making process. And it's like certain things in life require very quick decision-making and other things are more complicated. How do we know when we're dealing with one of those two situations? It's a fantastic question. I think it really comes down to your threshold of selfishness, honestly. And sometimes you have to be selfish. I don't think people really talk about that. Sometimes you can't burden yourself with the problems of everyone because there's only a very few people who successfully did that. And unfortunately, most of them were assassinated. (laughs) So if that's your goal, you know, then be the hero we all need, but don't deserve. But for me personally, I'm just trying to live, you know, I'm just trying to get by and help a few people within my circle that may be tribal. I agree. It probably is tribal, but if it comes down to the problem where it's like, if I'm affecting, contributing to a, a problem at its tipping point where the critical effect of my choice is maximized by the current situation I'm in, in the present, then I have a moral responsibility to not do it. Mm-hmm. but it's impossible for you to make any decision in the modern world without hurting or inhibiting something. Yeah. And so what is your threshold on that? How far are you willing to go consciously and, but I also, and, and your self-conscious, you know? But, but I also think you can hurt yourself. Like if you make brash decisions, it may screw you up in the long run as well. It's not, it's not just a question of hurting others. It's like, like think about our Las Vegas vacation. You might lose your own job, right? It's so it's not just that you're, um, taking collateral damage from the people around you, the the quickness of your decision might hurt someone else and it could hurt you. Let's say you go to Las Vegas and then you meet some girl and you marry her like two weeks later, <laughs> right? Now, now, now you've actually, you're, you're hurting that girl and you're hurting yourself. You're married to someone who you don't love and you just n- have known for two weeks. Let's say you get that girl pregnant. <laughs> now, now, now you're bringing a baby into this world and starting a family with someone you barely even know. So like, it's, it, it's, it's not just the people around you. It's also yourself that you're completely destroying by this like really rapid fire decision-making. Yes, but also no. And what I mean by that is brashness is only relative to your lifespan, right? The closer people get to death, the less they have to lose. The, the trick is, is that we don't know when we're going to die. So being brash is, I think, a derogatory term for courage in the present sometimes. And, you know, that, that is, there is obviously self-destructive choices, but also all of that is experiential in a way. I'm not saying go have babies. That's a totally different level of what we're talking about. <laughs> but if you're saying, Hey, I want to go to Vegas. If honestly, if you're like this, if you're waking up every single day and you cannot stand your life to the point where you're having suicidal thoughts, 
this is going to be a horrible analogy. Okay. But say, say you've been really plugging away at this for seven years and it's going nowhere. And maybe yesterday your boss was like, Hey, we're, you're actually not getting the promotion. This young guy from Yale is instead, sorry, just keep doing what you're doing for the next dec decade and retire out. Oh, by the way, your pension, we don't really know where it is. And you're like, you know what? I just want to go to Vegas and live. Do it. Do it. Right. That's brash technically, but I also. But I would argue it's not that brash. And here's why, because it's been okay. per, it's been percolating for years. I, I like the fact that you said seven years. OK, so if you've been chipping away right. at seven years, at seven years of anguish, seven years of like, I hate this job. I hate these people, you know, so like it may appear that that decision to go live in Las Vegas was brash, but it's probably a fantasy that you were entertaining for a number of years. You may not have actually. Uh, figured out all the details, but chances are you were probably squirreling away money. You were fantasizing about it. You know, a friend or two that lives in Las Vegas or something like that. I think mm -hmm. real brashness is like, there, there's no, there's no percolating at all. There's no like seven years of anguish or just fantasizing about this. It's just like, cool. I'm, I'm just, just like literally like you're a true Buddhist in the sense you're truly living. So irresponsible I think, more than brash. <sighs> I, I think there is probably an element of, of being irresponsible. It's not like, let's say you go to a restaurant and you don't really look at the menu. You just go to the restaurant right. and be like, I'll take whatever the chef recommends. Okay. That's brash. But what's the worst that can happen? You're served a platter of food that you don't particularly <laughs> like, right? Like it's brash. It's brash to go to a restaurant, not look at the menu and just say whatever the chef recommends and cool. Mm. And it's like badass and like macho or whatever, you know, maybe your date's impressed by that kind of stuff. Like, oh, he'll eat anything that comes out from the chef. Um, cool. Damn right. I'm a big man. I'm going to eat these like chicken fingers like there's no tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> so th there's brashness in there, but yes, there's no there's no substantial risk involved with, with that kind of decision. So I think I, I think I think you actually just pointed out something here. If there's substantial risk involved with your decision making, I think that's a good indicator right from the get go that this is probably going to be an over analytical problem, right? Like if, if there is risk associated with mm -hmm. your decision, this is a decision that is going to require some degree of analytical thinking. It's not something that can be decided on a capricious whim. Okay, so I can give you an example of when I was called brash and I did something fairly irresponsible and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Sure. I was, uh, you know, I was down on my life. Like I didn't, I didn't feel there was much of it. And I just decided in a two week period to get a motorcycle license. And then I bought a Ducati and I loaded it up and I traveled 30 days cross country living out of a bag. Almost blew all my, almost blew all my money out. Never owned a motorcycle before. My training was on a bicycle. Nice. And then in a parking lot on a, on a Harley. And then I bought a Ducati Multistrada and went all the way down the Appalachian Mountains to North Carolina, cut over to Kentucky, through Missouri, to Colorado, to Wyoming, back down to Colorado, Arizona, Utah, all of it, all the way to Texas. And then I flew. And everyone was like, this is so brash. What are you doing? You're going to die. <laughs> like, are you crazy? You don't know how to ride a motorcycle. What's wrong with you? Do you have the money for this? And I'm like, no, I don't know how to ride a motorcycle. Um, no, I don't have the money for this, but I'm doing it anyway. And let me tell you, the exhilaration and the feeling of freedom reminded me why I live. Mm. And sometimes the modern world complicates you with responsibilities and like fractal thinking. 
and it basically sludges your your possibilities to death. You know, it's like being under the belly of a slug as it rolls over you. It takes forever. You will get out of it, but you know that can that can sometimes be the framework of thinking, and sometimes that just takes drastic brash action. I mean, there is a reason why there's a correlation between courage and brashness. There is a reason for that. Like, for example, Beowulf, incredibly brash, lands on a shore, meets a bunch of people who are terrified by a monster, gets butt-ass naked and drunk and waits for him. I mean, that's pretty brash, right? But we idolize these types of people. So Occam's razor can sometimes take care of it in that manner. The problem is, is that in the modern world, we now have a long tail, a much longer tail of what to think about. You know, absolutely. And I, I think we talked about th this motorcycle um, journey of yours once before. And you were like, when you did this, you were a bit younger than you are now. You don't, you know, full transparency, you don't have a wife or kids or anything like that. Now there were, I'm sure there were some degree of risk. I'm sure there's a job that you left and some, some obligation that was left behind, but not to the point of like, you're going to come home a month later and your wife and kids are in a shelter or something like that. Right. Like, so Oof, the, yeah. you know, the, the, like, like there is there it was a brash badass cool cool move by the way I, I really admire it but at the same time though it's like you did have a lower like a substantially lower risk than a 40 a 43 year old guy who you know his kids about to graduate and and you know starting college and we need that we need that money to get through the first year or something you know so like I, I hear you on that. And I think that moves like that are important and we we should all do things like that. It's it really, it really like, and I like what you said, actually. I think you said, if it's the difference between life and death, take the brash move. And, and, and when I mean take the brash move, I don't mean rob a bank or anything criminal or anything. But if, if this Las Vegas vacation is going to be the difference between life and death, it's going to make mm -hmm. life all worth it again, then take the move, man. Like it's totally, totally worth it to live with a few consequences down the line. So when I think of, of brashness, there's two things that come to mind here. The first thing is the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? Mm -hmm. JFK is president right now. Um, Cuba is building bombs, and within a matter of weeks, Kennedy's like, "Let's just let's circle the damn island. We're going to create a blockade. We're going to prevent anything from coming here." Brash move, by the way. Like totally, yeah. we had no idea how the Cuban Missile Crisis was going to go down. It it could have been nuclear holocaust. It could have been so yeah. many things. There's even this story about this like Russian sub, marine captain or whatever, admiral or whoever was being. That's a true story. Yeah, he was being ordered to actually like fire something and that could have led to like nuclear holocaust, but he just did not listen to the um, instructions coming from Moscow and his better instincts took over and, and the crisis was averted. But brash movement could have could have gone like totally sour, but totally acted mm. quickly. And th there were other options like Kennedy could have gone to the UN and said, oh, we need to have diplomatic ties or whatever. No, no. It was like we're, we're building a blockade. End of story. And it worked out wonderfully. And he's a hero. And Kennedy is like a hero for doing that. Yeah. Now you take something like Vietnam, where it's like, what, what, why did we enter Vietnam? Well, something called the domino theory and the, and the Gulf mm -hmm. of Tonkin uh, resolution. And it's like, that was not really thought out at all, right? The domino theory. Well, if one country falls communist, the rest will as well. I'm like, no, man. Did you actually talk about this? Did you actually think that you find, did you find case studies in history where that was the case? Did you, you know, mm -hmm. did you do any legwork whatsoever? Did you bother 
uh, polling the population of Vietnam and saying how much, how many mm -hmm. were pro-communist, how many were pro-democratic, uh, you know, like you didn't do any preliminary research at all. You know, we could even extend that to like invading Iraq, you know, oh, well, there's mm -hmm. weapons of mass destruction. It's like, did you really look over every damn rock possible and find those things and have really solid evidence? And this is where you can have consequences that last for decades, decades and decades and decades and decades of consequence. Yes. And the brash person is going to be like, well, hey, man, domino theory. Let's, you know, that's how we roll around here. And it's like, great, you know, 15 years later, we're still in this country and we're still, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're killing the natives of this country and our own soldiers yeah. are dying. It's, it's terrible. It's awful. And yeah. we lost. Yeah. So let's break that down a little bit. So in my opinion, the reason why the domino theory was selected is because it wasn't faulty logic. It was outdated military strategy. And I think that once the Kennedys took over, um, there was an enormous uh, exponential increase in the speed of change and the rate of change in geopolitics and the way uh, the bureaucratic machine needs to operate, the slickness and the speed in which it needs to execute specific orders. And this is the fatal flaw that we're dealing with today, where it's basically, you know, our bureaucratic machine is just lumbering beast that takes a while to adjust. It's heavy. It's, you know, it's, it's indomitable, right? Or it's an immovable object. Ox, man, I'm going to butcher that name. Where the razor basically takes precedence for authoritarian <laughs> governments is that they can make these decisions quick. And so that's why I think he had to blockade the Cuban missile or had to blockade Cuba and take a brash action is because going to the UN would take however how long and then be up to a bunch of voices that aren't having missiles pointed at them. So I actually agree with him. He's one of my favorite presidents of all time. But Vietnam was a disaster. Going into that yeah. was, I, I don't know what exactly they expected because surely they knew there would be some sort of insurgency. There's no way that you could look at that island and not think the Viet Cong are going to dig in. There's no way. The issue here is Media started becoming a big thing. So media was a vehicle for the plight of those that are being oppressed. That was not, a, that was not really an option in Korea. For the first time, warfare is out in the public. You have, you have women flying from the United States with their Pentax K-1000s, landing on the shores of Vietnam, taking horrific photos of napalm bombings and children picking up their limbs that they lost from a recent explosion from an old landmine left by whichever side because they go out and they play into the woods. So, so the domino effect, I think, without media would have worked. I know that's gross, but that's a reality of warfare. Mm -hmm. So this is not taking into complex challenges, right? This is not assuming responsibility of the complexities of these choices and, and therefore led us down this horrible road where our own actions, because of the vehicle of the media and the atrocities that we create, we're refolding motivation into those we were trying to dominate. And, you know, it ended up being like a gross imperialistic attempt. You know what it was? It was an attempt to stop something really bad from happening around the world, which I do believe communism was terrible and is terrible and not a good thing. But at some point there has to be a threshold where we stop ourselves and say, are we complicating the issue by getting involved in the first place? Yes, yes. I, I, I love the last thing that you just said. Absolutely. I think also just 
acknowledgement that this is a complicated issue. Like I, you know, I'm obviously neither one of us is old enough to remember Vietnam, but I'm sure that at that time there were people that, you know, disagreed with McManera and, and disagreed with like, hey, you know, the French weren't really successful in there. This isn't really a good idea. It looks like 70% are pro-communist. It's just, this isn't going to be, this isn't like fertile ground. Whereas when you look at like, let's say the Marshall Plan, Marshall Plan was predominantly used in Western European countries where there was already a strong pro-democratic inclination already there. Like the people mm -hmm. in, in Western Europe wanted to be democratic. So it was a little bit more clear cut, whereas a country where, with Vietnam, forget about who was right or who was wrong, just admitting from the very beginning, this is complicated and there's no one theory. The domino theory is a theory. It is right. a theory, right. but is one of many theories. And if they would have taken more time to just take the domino theory and then compare that to other theories, like, well, Vietnam is a very unique case. It's, it's, it's a country that's quite different than some of these other uh, Southeast Asian countries, you know? So if they would have just admitted that it was a complicated issue, maybe we would have talked ourselves out of doing it. Th that's kind of what I think is one of the things that's always missing is this idea of giving it time enough to talk ourselves out of doing it. And I think it's the same thing uh, with Afghanistan and Iraq, where it's like Afghanistan, 9-11. We know exactly the guys who did this. They're, the, they're called the Taliban and they live in Afghanistan. That's a no brainer, right? It's like, it, it's, of course, even something like that has complexity as well, right? Like going into Afghanistan, but maybe less so because we know exactly the agents responsible for uh, attacking our national soil. But with Iraq, I'm not saying it was like the wrong thing to do or the right thing to do, but I, I don't think there was an acknowledgement that this is a complicated space. This is a complicated issue. And if we had just right. acknowledged from the beginning, this is complicated. Let's talk about it for a few years. You know, assuming they're not an eminent threat, we may, we may, we may decide otherwise. Yeah, and this is where morality really starts to gray the lines between decisive action. And you know, I, I study military history as much as I can. I'm, I don't claim to be a military historian, but there's one thing that I know about the Iraq war that was positive. And I disagreed going in Iraq in the first place. After finding out the WMDs were a total, uh, total lie, a fabrication. But let's talk about the region in general, right? In order to cut off this, the quote unquote Silk Road to financing terrorism, which is a much more effective means of rooting them out than landing troops in an insurgency-filled country that almost repelled every other nation like Russia has. They have a history of that, except maybe Alexander the Great. Very few people were able to conquer Afghanistan, right? For a good reason, by the way. Instead of landing troops in there, we wanna cut off their, their line of resources. Where does that come from? Through basically the Suez Canal all the way down through the, uh, the, uh, the Gulf of, uh, uh, help, help me out, what's the name of the body of water? I'm drawing a blank. The, uh, the Persian Gulf, the Persian yeah, Gulf, there you go, right? Yeah. That's where all the financing goes to Iran, through Iran, up into the Arab nations, through different you know insurgencies, and that's how they get funded. That was the whole reason behind Iraq. Oh, there was definitely- In my opinion. You no, know, there was definitely yeah. a net positive reason. And, but I, I think we can actually learn a little something from- But isn't you know, that simpler? 
Isn't it? Wouldn't you say that's simpler? It, it, it's definitely a simple explanation, but it's not the only right. explanation. And that, 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 that's, yeah. that's where I get to this. Now, the, 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 the last thing I think we can kind of learn from Vietnam before we kind of move off the, the, the war frontier is one thing that always makes me scratch my chin a little bit is when I was a kid, and maybe you'll remember this as well, about half of the shirts that I wore, when you looked at the tag, what did it say? Made in Made Vietnam. In well, oh, Vietnam. Yeah, made yeah. in Vietnam. I had a that's the other half. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Like when I grew up as a kid in you know in the '90s, let's say, so much of my clothing said "Made in Vietnam." This is what's really interesting about this is like I I say to myself, what if we had just left the country alone, just left it alone? Maybe they would have like turned capitalist on their own accord. Like that's the thing it's that drives me. Model. Maybe they would have done it even quicker because what ends up happening is we we tried uh, forcing capitalism down their throat, and then when you force someone to do something against their will, they they fight you even harder, right? Yeah. And then only for like you know 20, 30 years later, Vietnam they're still on paper, a communist country, but they have all these factories, all these shirts and clothing were made in Vietnam and sent here to the US. I'm like, if we had just waited 10 years, maybe they would have come up with those same, they would have arrived at the same place regardless of whether we got involved or didn't get involved. And I think it's the same thing with the Soviet Union. We never sent a single troop. We had, you know, obviously we fought with them through proxy of the Cold War. We never sent a single soldier into the Soviet Union, you know, as far maybe CIA intelligence and stuff, but not a real lot. Like we never had a physical war. They figured it out on their own. Right. Like in, in 1989, 1991, they figured it out on their own. This doesn't work for us. Let's get rid of it. And we didn't do a damn thing to, to really bring an end to it. Maybe Reagan had some like fierce fireside talks, <laughs> but, the, but like that wasn't enough. We didn't do anything physical to bring it down. It just happened right. on its own. That's a good example of just like being highly analytical and actually just waiting and see how things play out. And, and that's, that, that's, that's where I think there's this danger of the brashness. Yeah, I think that you made an amazing point. But I would also color that in saying there was an underground Cold War through espionage and the exchange of information and using that to weaponize diplomatic talks. And, you know, that's better than dropping bombs on civilians. Sure. Totally yeah. agree. Yeah. Totally agree. The issue is that Germany was a, an involved nation. So what do you do when you're dealing with an insurgency and a terrorist organization within a country, not an actual nation state itself? And, you know, this is why the Europeans were so snobbish about upholding the rules of war, even against the colonialists, right? Stand in a line, damn you, follow <laughs> the rules of war. And it's for these exact reasons. Honestly, I believe that. It's because once you start graying the line of the rules of war, total war becomes the issue. And that's where we're at now, where civilians are mixed in with combatants and it gets so messy. And that's, the, and that's an example of rashness right now, because once one country decides to violate the Geneva Convention, well, then you have to figure to yourself, like people don't follow the the Geneva Convention because they're nice. They know that as soon as they violate it, then the opposite country is also going to violate it and and do all sorts of crazy stuff to their own troops, right? That's where forward thinking comes into play, right? Because a brash person would be like, slaughter them, they're our enemy, blah, you know, right? Like like, 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 like some kind of Spartan warrior, just like, you know, like, like, let me kill his, right? But 
the over analytical thinker be like, I don't know if that's such a good idea, my friend, because what if some of our guys get caught and, and they're, they're, you know, become POWs. We don't want them to be tortured. You know, my, my friend, my, my friend, Charlie has just been captured. I don't want to see him being tortured or whatever. That's where like right. over analytical thinking kind of comes into play. Um, I want to kind of get off a little bit from war, just, 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 yeah. and, and sort of think about this in terms of our own lives. It's like, yeah, I'm wondering how it is. I'm, I'm trying to come up with this because I'm going to be honest with you. I'm definitely an over analytical thinker. You don't start a philosophy podcast without <laughs> being one. And, yeah. and I'm wondering like, how, how, how do I check myself when I'm overthinking? Because I, I had a, I had this one teacher come up to me once and said, Aaron, Aaron, you're just overthinking it. And when he said it for whatever reason, he was just right. Like, like when I heard those words, I was like, dude, you're completely right. I am overthinking this. So I'm wondering if you have any advice since, since you do have the brashness to go for cool ass, like uh, motorcycle rides, what advice would you give an over analytical thinker to kind of loosen up a little bit? Well, I I would be remiss if I didn't highlight the hypocritical nature of my response as an overthinker myself. So (laughs) a little disclaimer there, that is a hundred percent me. I struggle with that daily. So I'll just regurgitate the advice that I've tried to swallow my entire life into figuring out how to do that. Really, I think it just comes down to knowing what your priorities are and having almost like a monolithic hierarchy in your mind in terms of what those things are. And that's just a cold way of bracketing your choices in terms of, is this my primary initiative? Is this my secondary initiative? Is this my third initiative? No, it's none of those three things, then it's expendable. It's not a fair thing to do, but it's a fair, uh, it's the, one of the fairest ways that you can make that choice, I think. And part of my struggle is that my priorities have shifted a lot lately. So now I'm in the question of overthinking my priorities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not taking that advice very well, personally, in my own life at this very moment. But I would say that it comes down to that. And that sounds very simple because it is. It's like, what's number one? What's number two? And what's number three? And if any of those are being affected because of a number four choice, then you know your answer. Okay. So I think I love what you're saying. So I think that maybe that's a good tool for, for me to do and maybe for our listeners to do is coming up with a hierarchy of importance, right? So for example, if you're a very big family person, okay, let's just say that's number one on your list of importance, then the kind of job that you have might be like number eight or number nine. So it's not as important. Like you, every decision you make is like, well, I'm a huge family person. I always want the best for my family. That's number one. So I'm willing to take the family and move to Florida because it's going to be better for my family. Um, And maybe I'll be stuck with a job that I'm not too happy with, but career and work is number nine or number 10 or number 12 or whatever on my list. Family family is the most important. So I'm willing to sacrifice my career in order to raise my kids and my family in the most optimal environment humanly possible. And conversely, you might, you might be a, well, my career comes first, number one, and then family and other things are further down the list. So the level of thought that's put into those things depends on its positioning within the hierarchy. Right. I think I think that's really good advice, man. I I, I think that's that's terrific. And then the, the only thank da- God that's a terrifying question to ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Don't feel qualified to answer. 
I really no, don't. And, and, and it can, I overthink everything. And, and it could be dangerous where it's like, well, what happens if like down the line family becomes more important than work or work becomes more important than family? Like, are, are these things static? Do they, do they stay the same? I guess, no. I guess there has, to, yeah, they change, right? I think they, I think they should change, but I think, you know, it's important to get um, an ROI on your choices. Like to, to, if you've doubled down to a point and it's a negligible difference in priority, then you may as well get your return on investment. Um, that's a cold way of looking at it too. But I don't think you should lock yourself in either to this, um, to this uh, oppression of what your priorities are. It's your life, mm-hmm. you know? But like also notice consistency can be a priority, right? Consistency is a very important thing that I've struggled with my entire life because I'm such an active mind like you, I bounce around and have all these like entrepreneurial ideas. And then I go <laughs> try to start a business. And, you know, then I, I get this dream team set up and then there's always the issue of following through and, you know, getting it completed. Um, and just someone like me who likes to do stuff like that and, you know, work on multiple movies and multiple characters and shift, the, you know, it's, so it's a lot of like uh, effervescence. Consistency is the hardest thing. So that can be a priority too. And it, you should be able to change it. You're a sovereign human being to whoever I'm speaking to. You know, you're, listen, Joe, Joe and Jane, you're a sovereign human being. All right, guys, you can decide what your priorities are, but try to keep it simple and just stick with it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't, is that a good advice or is that just me avoiding well, the responsibility actually, of sticking you, to one thing? <laughs> well, actually, from what you said, a good question came to my mind. So thank you. Even, even if you don't answer the question, sometimes a question just pops into my head. No, and good. that is... I think it's a it's a question of time scale, okay? Because there needs to like I, I like what you said. Like uh, sometimes I I work on this project for a little bit and then I bounce to another project. So I think a certain amount of time needs to go by where you're really yearning for something for it to be true and not a whim, right? So let, let's just say mm. for example you want to get your pilot's license. I'm just throwing that out there. You want to become a pilot. You want to get your pilot's license. How long does that have to live? inside of you before you know what it actually that that's actually what you want right so i would say if you want to get your pilot's license your pilot's license for two months it's probably not what you want it's only been two months you know you probably had a cool experience in a plane and saw someone flying a plane and you were like cool i could see myself doing that or whatever it may not act and i actually have this problem when it comes to learning foreign language like i've tried learning french and spanish and don't get me wrong i put on like a totally good effort for several months but then i kind of get to this point where i'm like i don't really speak french every day i don't have that many yeah. french friends it's not something that i'm going to be using i don't plan on living in france indefinitely is yeah. is this really worth the effort that i'm putting in there now Again, I might watch a French movie. I might visit France and be like, whoa, so cool. Everyone's speaking French. I want to know French too, but it's not something that I really want. So I would argue that for for it to be something that you truly want, you have to be thinking about it for like probably a year. That's that's just my, it's a rule of thumb and it's it's not ironclad. I just think that a few months of wanting something just isn't enough. I think it's got to be a year or more. I think that it's different for each person. I mean, I've definitely met people who just know, Mm. and it's a skill that I envy so deeply. (laughs) The type of person who's like, nope, we met in a coffee shop. I knew this person was my wife and we've never looked back. 
And, you know, and they did it. It's not just like a fake thing that they say. It's like actually worked. And they're like, no, it works. And then, you know, like a buddy of mine that I grew up when I went to high school with, that happened to him in college. And they're just, that's not a problem. <laughs> you know, it's an <laughs> asset. It's like, it's like a, it's a, you know, it's a color streak through their daily life. And it's just amazing that they just knew, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been that clear. I'm like you where I, I need time thinking on it and like putting energy into it because the idea is one thing. The, um, the necessary sacrifice to get there is a whole nother thing that you can't foresee. Yes. You yes. can, you can plan for kind of like a backpacking journey, but you know, if you sprain a knee on the mountain, that's a whole different set of problems. than do I have enough food and water to, to make it through? Right. It's funny you actually mentioned that couple because there are amazing ass people and amazing ass couples like the one that you just described. Yep, we met in a coffee shop. I just knew right then and there. Beautiful. But there's wow. also the version of that story of like, oh, I knew this person for six months and I, I knew right there. And then like five years later, their marriage is in, in a hellhole. And it's like, well, if you had just waited a little bit, if you had just grown up a little bit more, if you had just, you know, developed into your own unique characters, you would have realized that this person was not the right person for you, you know? So we know, I, I know two versions of that same exact story. One ends up really wonderful. And then the other turns into a giant train wreck. And it's hard, right. you know, it's like, it's impossible to know what exactly is going to happen. Are you going to get the train wreck or are you going to get the, the happy ending? You don't, you don't know. You're never going to know, you know, to, to make, to put, to apply the eraser to this, uh, just do it and find out. I mean, for me, I I'm haunted by the ideas I didn't chase down. Like that is, and so when I weigh on the scales in terms of what type of regret I may uh, have to overcome, sometimes the regret of not doing it for me, actually I would say most of the time, regret of not doing it is feels more cumbersome than doing it to a point where it's exhausted and I know for sure. You know, I'm like, you know what? If I doubled down and the universe still says no, then at least I know I doubled down. And I'm paying, I'm paying for the security that that, that priority has been uh, attempted. I, I, I like your outlook on that. I, I think that even if you, let's say you end up in a really crappy marriage, okay? But then you get divorced and then you can say to yourself, all right, at least, at least I found out that she wasn't the one or something like that, right? Like, like I, 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 that's right. a pretty positive outlook that you, you were, because then if you never end up with that person at all, then you're left wondering, well, what if I, what if I had only married my high school sweetheart and now you have to live with that? Whereas if you marry your high school sweetheart and it turns sour, at least that's something you can check off the list. You can cross that off the list and be like, all right, I, I, I don't have to sit in, in wonderment of what would have been. I experienced right. it. It just didn't work out. You, you might be onto something that might actually be better to live with. I don't know if we feel that way about Vietnam. Like, oh, okay, well, at least we found out. With that. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I don't in know. The is like, <laughs> yeah. So I, I think maybe so to kind of close this out here, I think the, the biggest caveat is if you, you have to really think you want something in order to take that leap of faith. And then when you think you really want something, and again, we can argue what the appropriate amount of time is, then you should probably just do it, right? Like, so if I know, yeah, this, this is definitely what I want, you're gonna have regret if you don't do it. Now that doesn't mean right. it's gonna be a success, but you ought to do it anyway, even, even if it becomes a, a volcano disaster. Right. So, right. but I, I think that 
giving yourself space to really know this is what I want. And then periodically holding yourself accountable. Like, well, wait a minute, last month you wanted to be a clown. Now you want to be a sumo wrestler. Like you have to really, you have to track your thoughts. That's why journaling is so important. You have to journal your thoughts and make sure that the same thing is coming up. If you're in love with Mary Sue, every single day you should be thinking about Mary Sue for a prolonged period of time before you know like yeah this woman is definitely the right woman they can't they can't be like Mary Sue on Tuesday and then Luann on Thursday like it's got to be the <laughs> same it's got to be that same it's got to be that same woman for an extended duration of time and then once you know act upon it i think that's some good advice uh, alex thank you so much for being on the show today thank you this concludes the 133rd episode of the Truth Island Podcast. I'm Aaron Asrod.